From 3 Uncanny 4, this is Viral, a show about COVID-19. I'm your host, TJ Raphael. And I'm reporter Emily Saul. And, as will be the new status quo, we are making this episode from our respective homes across the tri-state area. So, the economy. Things don't look so hot right now. And at the risk of being blunt, that's what we're going to talk about today. Why are things getting bad? How bad are they about to get? And can anything be done about it? We'll talk about that. But first, Emily, let's get those headlines. This episode was recorded on Tuesday, March 17 at 11.13 a.m. Eastern Time. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. 4,661 Americans have confirmed cases of COVID-19. 85 people have died. Globally, there are 185,067 confirmed cases and 7,494 deaths. Millions in Europe are living in lockdown, and counties in California are ordering people to shelter in place. The Trump administration Tuesday proposed an $850 billion stimulus package to help struggling businesses and individuals weather the economic slowdown triggered by the novel coronavirus. Meanwhile, Amazon on Monday announced its plans to hire 100,000 people in order to keep up with all the online orders, spurred by widespread social distancing. Coming up, the markets are freaking out. And there are real fears that we're careening towards another global recession. What does our financial crisis playbook even look like? That's next, after the break. Think of the world during the last global pandemic, the Spanish flu of 1918. It was still a world where most of the things people bought were made within walking distance from their homes. Today, of course, most of the things we buy are made all over the world and use ships and planes and trains and trucks to move all that stuff to where it's assembled, warehoused, and then set to shops for us to buy. This pandemic, right now, is the biggest challenge ever to this global supply chain. It is such a huge and complicated mess that it's unknowable. It is impossible for any company to know all the steps its products take to get from their raw form to the consumer. And every single one of those steps is under siege. Will rail workers show up for work? Will planes fly? Will borders be open? Will people even buy the stuff once it's made and delivered? That's no small question. We are testing the system our way of life is built on. The medicine in your cabinet, the devices in the hospitals, Not to mention that super fly chihuahua sweater you've been coveting for months and finally bought. Those things come by way of this system. So you're going to hear a lot about the supply chain on this show today because, well, our way of life and our actual lives truly depend on it. We'll start today with one guy named James, who oversees a tiny portion of that global supply chain, train parts. His job is to coordinate the movement of parts of trains from one place to another. And there are tens of thousands of Jameses, people who monitor and direct some part of this massive global network. And what that means is James manages a supply chain for his clients. He figures out how much product is out there, when and where and how it can get moved around. 
He's the logistics guy in the super complicated web of things. Things that allow trains to get built, which allows stuff to get shipped on trains, which allows things to get to stores and get sold. Basically, what I'm talking about here is the global economy. And last week, James got a little surprise from President Trump in that kind of disastrous national address on coronavirus he gave. Because if you recall, in addition to a travel ban, Trump threw in the word trade. And for supply chain analysts, that's bad news. It's especially bad news if you work with train parts, because a lot of that stuff is coming from Europe. Friday morning, we had a meeting. The White House had corrected that statement later on. However, we were all very concerned that either trade was on the top of his mind or would be next. It seems to be quite a big thing to either let slip or mistake at that moment in time. So what could they do to protect their supply chain? Well, they reached out to all of their European suppliers and said, send us what you got. Even if partial quantities that we might have on order, say we want 10, but they only have three in stock, well, we'll take those three right now. Go ahead and ship them right now to the United States and we will have that inventory. And look, it doesn't take an economist to tell you this only works for so long. And James knows this. Because it's not just regulation that threatens his supply chain. It's that we, regular, everyday people, aren't traveling. We're canceling our work trips and vacations and trips to see family. And that's a big problem. There are about two semi-trucks full of air freight, which is like parts and goods, on your airplane if you're on a 747, underneath with the passenger's luggage and the passengers. So... Essentially, um, throughout the world, a good amount of goods and parts and uh, freight hitch a ride on these airlines and air travel. These goods and services are now going to be impacted as flights get canceled, rerouted, delayed. Also, we're not the only company that's going to be wanting to use this freight and travel our goods through this freight service. Uh, Every company under the sun you think is going to have to be acting on it. And as James looks down the line, beyond his company and his job, but as a guy who understands how things end up in grocery stores for us to buy, he sees a problem. I grew up personally in a, uh, you know, a poor trailer park. None of my family has stocks. Futures in S&P might as well be Hogwarts to my family. It's all the same. Hey, what are you talking about? Middle Earth there? Uh, but what is real, I think, for a lot of Americans and not just my family, is uh, food scarcity. And I believe many Americans from all walks of life are uh, probably feeling this a little bit in the back of their mind. As in, um, they go to the store, the grocery store, food shelves are empty. Um, if everyone continues to panic buy or maybe rightfully stock up, because we don't know yet how this uh COVID-19 coronavirus is truly going to play out, um, I think many of us may be unprepared for the long haul. And this is something we're already starting to see play out in little ways. We spoke with one produce shop owner in Connecticut who said the entire Northeast wholesale produce industry has been geared for St. Patrick's Day. There are container loads of cabbage, potatoes, and carrots just sitting around that nobody wants. People only want that much cabbage one day of the year. 
This is the kind of thing the global supply chain is normally perfectly equipped to handle. It's how the thing was built. We have all these shifts in what we want. Chocolate and roses on Valentine's Day, winter coats in the fall, and bathing suits in late spring. If some product suddenly becomes super popular, the global supply chain springs into action and gets more of it to the people who want it. And if something else becomes less coveted, it can be replaced. But with the entire supply chain so stretched, it's hard for the system to react. So cabbage is filling up trucks and train cars. When people really want produce with longer shelf life, like beans and apples. So first it's train parts. That might seem like it won't affect most of us, our daily lives. But down the line, as James puts it, Coronavirus is not a blizzard where you can go run out and buy bread and toilet paper, but it's we're experiencing a winter where this is going to be longer term. We should make clear, our food supply chain is not in serious trouble right now. America does make more food than we consume, and there are ample calories available. But as this thing lasts, we might have a narrower choice of things to buy. So what can we do to prepare for this winter? Anything at all? After the break, winter is coming. And our editor, Adam Davidson, will walk us through what tools we have to get ready. Next. So, Adam, for the past few days, I feel like I've only been hearing one thing, and that is the Fed. But truly, what is the Fed and what can they even do to fight a pandemic? Yeah, I. Uh, this has been an issue in my life for the last uh, 20 years. The Fed is the most boring thing in the world, the most confusing thing in the world, until those brief moments when it is the most important thing in the world. And, uh, and, and so it's moments like this where we sort of as a nation go through a crash course in how the Fed and central banking works. Um, so the, the Fed is um, this entity that essentially controls the interest rates that are paid for dollar-denominated loans. Um, they specifically control something that sounds sort of obscure and irrelevant in a crisis. They control the interest rate for loans that banks give each other overnight. So every single day, every single working day, every bank in the world pretty much um, – adds up how much money they have, how much money that uh, is out, and they figure out, do we have more money than we need or do we have less money than we need? And then the, the banks that have more money than they need lend it just overnight from like 4 p.m. till 8 a.m. to banks that have less money than they need. It's a very standard, boring thing. Even people who work in banks don't really think about it that often. But Oddly enough, when there is a global crisis, that is the most important thing that a way to think about it is that overnight loan that the Fed controls the interest rate of is the safest thing that exists. It's the safest type of financial transaction. And so every other loan, every other bond, every other financial instrument is basically coordinated to that rate. So when the Fed raises it or lowers it, it's like they have a light dimmer switch and they're either increasing the cost of lending during 
you know, times that are too enthusiastic when inflation is rising, et cetera, or they're lowering the cost of lending in a time like this when there's real concern about the economy essentially shutting down. And the Fed, unlike Congress, unlike banks themselves, can just do this in an instant. The members of the Federal Open Market Committee, which in normal times is 12, there's a few seats empty, can just meet and agree and instantly every loan in the world that is denominated in dollars is uh, either a little bit more costly or a little bit less costly. And that's what they did uh, this weekend. Okay, Adam, so I hear you. Interest rates are changing, but a lot of people had jobs on Friday and woke up Monday morning and found that they didn't. And these aren't salaried people. These are people who were working in NBA stadiums. Maybe it's your local bartender. And one poll out today, Tuesday morning, found that one in five Americans have actually had their hours reduced or even been let go because of coronavirus, which has me really wondering, what can the Fed do for people like that? Yeah, this is a concern, and we're barely into this thing. You know, there was uh, the Economic Policy Institute came out with some analysis that only about 30% of jobs can be done remotely from home. So it, it, it is a time of real concern. So when you lower interest rates for banks, you're also lowering um, future mortgage interest rates, credit card interest rates. So people who owe money owe a little bit less money, hopefully. And people who want to borrow money or small businesses or companies that want to borrow money can borrow money more cheaply and more quickly. And so the the hope there is if there's a small business, a restaurant, say, that's realizing they're going to be in trouble, they can borrow a little bit of money more cheaply and quickly. And maybe they don't have to lay off quite so many people. Um, Consumers like us who can work remotely, maybe our credit card bills are a little lower. We're feeling slightly more optimistic. So we're ordering more stuff from small businesses or large businesses on Amazon. Um, these are all efforts to get the lifeblood of the economy kind of moving a little more fluidly so that um, at least some of those jobs don't have to be eliminated. You know, this is a very, very strange economic crisis. Usually, economic crises are internal to the economy. You know, companies got too excited. They lent too much money to buy houses or they built up too much inventory. And there's sort of an internal to the economy process that um, slows the economy down. This is what economists call exogenous. There's this outside force, this virus, and the good and bad responses to the virus um, that have led to this global economic problem. And it means that the tools are a little hard to understand and hard to know precisely how to use. They're not engineered for a moment like this. But at the end of the day, as weird as this sounds, an economy runs on hope. It runs on a belief in the future, that the fundamental nature of our economy, that of things like economic growth, of new job creation, of innovation, of all the things that have brought us so much, is some number of people believing the future is going to be better than the past was. And so I'm going to take money I have now, put it at risk, because I think the future will be better. And I have as a reporter, I've spent time in Haiti, I've spent time in Iraq and other countries in the Middle East. 
I've been in countries where there is not hope in a better future, where people realistically believe the future is going to be pretty grim. And economies do not function under those conditions. You see the rich staying wildly rich, you see the poor stuck, and you see real desperation and pain. And a way to think about what the Fed is doing is it's sort of giving the entire country and the world, um, I don't know how to put it, a, a, a dose of Xanax or something. It's trying to say, hey, we're going to do what we can to make the future a little bit better. They're certainly not going to fix everything, but we're going to give you a little more hope than you had uh, maybe last week. So. The Federal Reserve injected more than $1.5 trillion into the market recently. And can you explain that? What is that $1.5 trillion doing for us right now? Yeah, and th this is um, this is <laughs> where a lot of uh, economically minded uh, people get, get very frustrated because it's I don't think the Fed's great at explaining their actions. And then there's a lot of misrepresentation. So here's what did not happen. The Fed did not just give $1.5 trillion to banks as a gift. The Fed does have this magical power. It's able to create money out of thin air. So the Fed can just make it be that there's $1.5 trillion more dollars on any, at any moment that they want it to be. And basically what they're doing, we talked about this overnight lending Um that's the Fed's primary tool, the tool it usually uses. But there's other forms of lending. There's, you know, banks are lending money to each other for three-month periods or six-month periods. Um, companies are lending money to each other. So, you know, big, large companies, General Electric or Ford or General Motors, are lending money to each other. And what the Fed is doing is stepping in and just kind of supercharging um, that process by using $1.5 trillion to buy up some of those loans, which essentially makes those loans less attractive um, to the people lending the money, to further st force banks. It's basically a way to force banks, if they want to make money, they're going to have to lend not just to General Motors or to each other, they're going to actually have to lend to small business people. Now, this process can take a while, and obviously it is confusing. I'm trying really hard to explain it clearly, but it is it is confusing. It takes years to really understand how the Fed works. So I don't expect the impact to be immediate, but the hope is that it that it will happen. It's certainly not everything we need, but it is a thing we need. And it's the one thing that can happen truly immediately. So I want to do a little case study here. And this is kind of a personal anecdote. You know, my dad is 71 and he's partially retired. Uh, he is a hairdresser. He's an independent contractor. He used to do it for film and TV, but now he goes to people's houses as a partially retired person. And I know people like him, service workers um, and other people are really concerned that the government isn't really going to be able to help them. My dad's clients, if they feel like they don't want a person in their house cutting their hair, might cancel on him. And that then means lost revenue and income for him for the next month or two. Um, there are other people that work for themselves. Maybe they're freelancers, independent contractors or service workers. I'm having a hard time understanding how something like the Fed or the government can help people like them. Could you talk me through that a little bit? Thanks for that, TJ. I your dad is exactly who we're most concerned about. And to be honest, he is he's the hardest person to help with our current suite of tools. Um, people say the Fed 
intervention is like pushing on a string. It's very, very hard to have a direct impact. And your dad is at the very long end of the string. Um, in normal times, the Fed would be stimulating banks and large companies who would be then buying services from smaller businesses. And then all sorts of people would feel a little more flush with cash. They'd be going to meetings. They'd want to look good. And so they would go to your dad. Um, but right now, it's really hard to think of an economic tool that directly replaces what your dad is missing. I mean, the best thing the Fed has is, hey, we're going to try and keep this economy afloat so that three months from now, six months from now, a year from now, whenever we're through this, there will still be an economy and your dad will have customers then. But there's not a lot the Fed can do in the short term. For that, we really need Congress. We need Congress to start spending money. Yeah, and it looks like possibly possibly the Trump administration might be offering up some kind of proposal to Congress. We're recording this Tuesday morning, and it's just been reported that the White House is preparing to ask for about $850 billion in additional stimulus. Adam, in your view, if you were to get all that money at this point, where would you be uh, directing it into the economy? So the, the, the standard advice, the, the advice of John Maynard Keynes, the guy who sort of invented the whole idea of government stimulus, is um, infrastructure projects. You always hear about infrastructure projects, but it's a good idea. Um, you know, we have an aging infrastructure. You could imagine the government saying, here's $850 billion. I think eventually it's going to have to be in the trillions. We're going to build bridges. We're going to build schools. We're going to build airports. We're going to fix roads. It's actually a really good time to do it economically because interest rates are so low that the government can essentially borrow money for free. Um, in fact, they're sort of paid a premium to borrow money because people are afraid of lending to anyone who isn't a government. Um, but we can't do that right now because people are not going to be out there working. Um, so that gives us a, a, a narrower set of policies. Now, President Trump and the Republicans are talking about tax cuts. Of course they are. Every problem uh, can be solved with tax cuts um, for in their mind. The truth is tax cuts are not a terrible idea. It is a very quick way. You just announce we're going to have a tax cut and suddenly everybody who pays taxes feels a little bit richer. That's not a terrible way. It's just generally seen as not quite as effective as direct government spending. So ideally, we would be spending, obviously, healthcare infrastructure would be a great place to spend hundreds of billions of dollars. You could imagine... Um, all sorts of spending that would that would both put money into the economy directly, but also um, help in recovery of the crisis. A lot of prominent economists have been really creative at thinking of ways the government can instantly help us right now. Um, for example, the idea of the government just filling the demand that's missing, literally buying up the airplane tickets that haven't been sold, paying your dad for all the hairstylist appointments that um, he isn't getting, buying up all those meals that aren't being eaten in restaurants. This might sound nuts, like what, what's the government going to do? But if you look at a big macroeconomic picture, it's not that crazy. The government can spend some significant percentage of GDP, a few trillion dollars, and essentially transfer that money into the private sector as sort of a placeholder. And the idea is that will keep the economy sort of close to where it's been so that when this virus is contained and we're able to shop again, we're starting where we were. We're not starting 10%, 20%, 40% poorer than we were before. Um, it, it's 
on the one hand, a radical idea. It's very hard to see Republicans buying it. But on the other hand, it seems exactly what we need right now. And sometimes crises are when you you do get radical, smart ideas. So it sounds like we really should be paying attention to the Fed, to Congress. And if things do start to get really, really bad, we might wind up actually seeing some of these more surprising and unconventional efforts to stimulate our economy. So that was today's show. We'll be back in your feed on Thursday. Viral Coronavirus is a three Uncanny Four production. The show is hosted by me, TJ Raphael, with reporter Emily Saul. Our senior producer is Lena Richards. Our associate producer is Rahima Nasa. Our editor is Adam Davidson. This episode was mixed by Tim Einekel. We'll be coming to you later this week with the latest on COVID-19. In the meantime, rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. It helps listeners like you find us.